And then if you would, uh, go to page 48 in the back of your blue. Uh, We'll read the catechism answers together, but just uh, for questions 93 through 95. So what I'm going to do is as we consider, uh, begin to consider the Ten Commandments together, I will read uh, the Ten Commandments in their entirety tonight, and uh, that way we'll just respond with these last three questions together. Let's remind ourselves of the law of God, that law which both convicts us of sin and then by the Lord's Spirit sends us out into grateful obedience. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, your son or daughter, your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. God's word stands forever. May he bless it to us. Page 48 then, beginning with question 93, and we'll respond together for 93 through 95. Speaking of these 10 commandments, as we consider tonight the first, how are these commandments divided into two tables? The first has four commandments, teaching us what our relation to God should be. The second has six commandments, teaching us what we owe our neighbor. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my very salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, magic, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures, that I sincerely acknowledge the only true God, trust Him alone, look to Him for every good thing humbly and patiently, love Him, fear Him, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I give up anything rather than go against His will, in any way. What is idolatry? 
Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Look at this first commandment as we go through these ten important once again just to remind ourselves of how this section of the catechism is titled. It is titled Gratitude. Gratitude. And the good news of that is that as we think about the importance of Christian ethics, as we think about how we are to live in this life, which is a, a huge question and, and should take up a lot, of our, a lot of our time and reflection and effort, we're reminded that salvation is by grace and that we have been saved because of the work of Jesus Christ and simply by placing our trust in him, God makes us new and empowers us to do all of these things. Thus, we consider this together and we thank the Lord that he has given us instruction on what to do after we trust in Christ. And we give thanks that he has told us all of these things. Sociologists talk about the nuns in America. That's nun, N-O-N-E. Particularly uh, for my generation, right? Millennials. There has been a, a skyrocketing of people who classify themselves as nuns. In other words, when they are asked what their religious affiliation is in any kind of survey or questionnaire, they will say none. There is no religious affiliation. That would make it seem like our culture is becoming far less religious or spiritual. But actually, the opposite is the case. Uh, Because church attendance is essentially the same as it was about 25 or 30 years ago. The change is that all those people who before never really went to church but called themselves Episcopal or Methodist or Baptist don't feel the cultural pressure to have those kinds of titles or classifications anymore. Then there is also this phenomenon that careful sociologists have noted that there is a massive rise in the interest of spirituality or new age or even ancient pagan thinking. Thus, the numbers about belief in God, scare quotes, God, have remained quite high in our culture. I'll give you an example. In the early 1990s, 96% of Americans said that they believed in God. 96%. This sounds extremely high even for a poll that was 25 or so years ago. Yet perhaps it is even more staggering to hear that while the numbers are down, the 2016 numbers show that 90% of Americans still to this day claim belief in God. But once we start doing a little reflection and unpacking of these numbers, the results are far more worrisome than encouraging. Part of the problem, of course, is with language, as I scare-quoted God. The English-speaking world, English-speaking Christians, we use the word God for the God of the Bible. So we come into a Christian home, and without fear, we can say things like, God is so good, and we know that we're talking about the triune God of Scripture, the one who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. But 
Other people who come perhaps from different backgrounds but still speak English use the same word, God, to refer to a whole host of ideas about the divine, about spiritual things, and about the supernatural. This problem was illustrated in an anecdote I read this past week. There was a woman named Sheila Larson who was interviewed on a a national program many years ago regarding her views on God and the divine. Her response is telling and indicative of the approach to God in our culture. She said this, I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheila-ism, she says. Remember, her name is Sheila. It's Sheila-ism, just my own little voice. Notice the response that she gave. Religious fanaticism is what one calls going to church. This is what she likens to religious fanaticism. Faith is thought of as a powerful agent. My faith has carried me. We talked about this this morning, right? Faith in itself is worthless unless it is in Jesus Christ. She says, my faith has carried me as opposed to God or Jesus carrying you. The particulars of one's faith or one's belief in God comes from one's own invention. I believe in Sheilaism. And one's own little voice is the steering wheel for life. What tells you where to go? This is not rare. It's actually a quite common approach to spirituality and religiosity in our culture. But it tells us something, doesn't it? And it tells us that human beings were made to worship something. For many people, idolatry is a simple answer. Idolatry is found in smartphones or TV shows for many. But oftentimes, the void that is not filled by those things leaves people looking elsewhere for the love and the fulfillment and the experience of the divine that they so crave because we are worshiping creatures created by God to glorify Him. And so there is this sense in in everyone as the image of God that they are to worship something. At this point, this is when people turn to the big questions, don't they? The ultimate questions that need answers. But when people come to questions like, what is the meaning of life? They come from a radically subjective point of view, individualistic. What gives me a center are the things that they ask. What gives me purpose? What makes me feel better? All of these questions they ask themselves and showing that they're coming at it from the exact wrong point of view. The Christian answer to all of this is found in this foundational commandment in God's law, the first commandment dealing with idolatry. Fulfillment, knowing God, the divine, security, assurance, all of these things come not when we find it in ourselves, not when we define it for ourselves, but when we realize that the only true God, the only one in all, in all the universe, demands our worship and allegiance. So three things tonight. First, he is a covenant God. And we'll look a little bit at what that means. He is a covenant God. He is Yahweh. He is a redeeming God. And he is the only God. Covenant God, redeeming God, and he is the only God. And because of all of these things, we are to love and to serve him with an undivided heart. 
the commandments begin by saying, I am the Lord your God. Think of those first two words, I am, I am. From this we see that God speaks to his people. He is a God who, as one theologian put it, he speaks as an I and addresses as a thou. And that sounds weird to us, but he does that to point out that it is amazing that God speaks to his people. It is amazing that God acts in history. This is a God who speaks and who acts. He is a living God who does not avoid the works of his hands, but is concerned with the glory of his name in his creation. He is a God who speaks and acts. To relate this to our current cultural situation, the data that we talked about suggests that while many people believe in what they call God, no one really knows much about the God of Scripture. The one who speaks in Exodus 20. The, the poll that I referred to earlier, I did a little bit more digging on it, and it says that six out of seven people say that it's okay to not believe in God. The same poll where 96% of people said they themselves believe in God. In other words, most people find it necessary in their own lives to make room for God or an idea of God, but it's not right to suggest that other people need to do the same. Everyone is religious, but a precious few are biblical. This is the world into which this law of God still speaks. And it is this world into which God himself speaks as a covenant God of mercy, the one who stands willing to save all who turn to him in faith. God says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, the Lord in all capital letters, that means that it is the Hebrew covenantal name for God, Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. We gloss over this without thinking about it much, perhaps without even realizing what the Bible is telling us. But to the mind of the Israelite, this name of God, this covenantal name of God, Yahweh, was everything. In Exodus 3, Yahweh speaks to Moses. And he gave this name to him to tell to the people. God says this, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. God said, I'm, I'm hearing your cry. I'm going to save you. I'm going to liberate you. And it was not until God acted for them in history, hearing their cry and conquering their foes, and that is when they knew him as Yahweh. It was not Ra, the god of Egypt, who did this. It was not Baal, it was not Milcom, it was not Molech, it was Yahweh. Thus, as we read the prologue to this Ten Commandments, just as it was true for Israel, it is true for us. We cannot settle for any god. In the face of a culture that desires to define God for themselves 
And to define it based upon the little voices inside their mind or hearts, we must cling to the, to the revelation of God in His Word, in Scripture. So many people think that there is some wonderful idea of God within themselves. If they just comb through the depths of their hearts, they will find this wonderful idea of God. But it is actually the opposite. The more we depend on ourselves to define God, the more we get it wrong. Our own hearts and minds are factories of idolatry. Huge problems why it's the first commandment. All of these ideas of God will run on unless we, can't, we cling to God's revelation of himself in Scripture. We must keep all of this in mind as we are met with a culture that really has not dismissed spirituality or religion or even God from the public square or the majority of opinions. What it has dismissed is the conviction that this God is Yahweh, who is known to us not only as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but also as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the God that has been dismissed from the public mind. Not only is he a covenant God, though, he is a redeeming God. He is a redeeming God. That leads us into the next phrase. He is the Lord, our God, or Yahweh, our God, who brought Israel out of Egypt. This covenantal name of God was made known to them as they were liberated, as we just said. And the New Testament makes clear that these people who were liberated out of Egypt are our forefathers. They're our ancestors. As Christians, we ought to treasure these great stories of God's victory as God doing this for our own people, right? The Red Sea, David and Goliath. We ought to treasure these stories even more than we treasure hearing the stories of the courageous heroes of our own culture who fought in the Revolutionary War and the Civil War and both of the great world wars of the 20th century. These are all great and often wonderful stories of triumph and the triumph of freedom, of the beautiful idea of the universal, the universal value of created human beings. But the stories of Old Testament Israel are the people to whom we are joined by the worship of the same true God. But the liberation from Egypt is not the final story in Scripture, is it? It shows us that he is a redeemer God who lifts his people up out of the pit of destruction and carries them on eagles' wings in order to be with him. And it is in Jesus Christ that we see the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate revelation of who this Yahweh is for his people. Jesus reminds all the people of his day that Moses wrote about him. He says that David calls him Lord. David ascribes him praise. And then he says, before Abraham was, I am. He says, it all points to me. It's all pointing to me and to what I do. When we read the epistles that speak of God or our Father or use the title the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, what the apostles are doing is pointing out that this is how we know Yahweh now. This is his covenantal name for us. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fullest revelation of the God who saves his people. He is the one who sent his Son, true God, to atone for our sins. 
And so when we read the Ten Commandments, brothers and sisters, and think about them, we are reminded of the liberation of our fathers out of Egypt. And how do we understand it, knowing all that we know about this great God? We ought to read it and be reminded that he is the God who delivers his people and that he has done that for us in Jesus Christ. And thus, we worship this one God, this triune God, as our Redeemer. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So we give the same honor to the Son as we do to the Father. And together with the Father and the Son, we worship the Holy Spirit who proceeds from them both. Not just any God will do, but the God of the Gospel. Because as we see in this commandment, it is the good news of what God does for us. This first commandment leads with grace. It leads with good news. And that provides the motivation for all that's going to follow. I am the Lord your God who has redeemed you. I am the Lord your God who has liberated you. That provides the motivation. That's what we are to hear when we read the prologue for these commandments. Martin Luther famously said this, If I do not know the gospel, I cannot worship, praise, thank, or serve God, for I shall never know how much I owe to God and how much I owe to myself. We must know him in the gospel. And the gospel provides the motivation for obeying these commandments. He is a covenant God, He is a Redeemer God, and He is the only God. The Apostle Paul, of course, carried this particular message to the ends of the earth, that you must know this God in Jesus Christ, His Son. You must be reconciled to Him by trusting in the work of Jesus. In Acts 17, we have a fascinating look into one of the ways Paul proclaimed this message. He was here at the Areopagus, which in that day and age, really would have been the equivalent to the Oprah Winfrey show. All the eyes are on him. He is on the world stage, and everyone stands ready to hear what he has to say. This is a pivotal moment in the ministry of Paul. And he's speaking to people who worship all different kinds of gods, a whole pantheon who see gods as beings who can be cajoled and, and, and convinced to do one thing or another if you need a, faith, a favor. So Paul says this, says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown... This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to mankind all life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
What Paul is telling us in this fascinating account is that what they have sought to worship in their ignorance is the God of Scripture. They saw the world as infused with this divine quality, this thing that we see in everyone, this need to worship something. And they assumed that there were many gods who exercised control over all the spheres of life. There's a god for everything, right? A god for the mountains, a god for the oceans. But Paul tells them that this is not so. He tells them that there is one God who made heaven and earth, one God who exercised power, exercises power and providence over everything. Thus, this commandment is clear for us tonight. You shall have no other gods before me. The Hebrew word for God is Elohim, and it can have different nuances of meaning. It can mean gods in the plural, or it can mean God in the singular, or it can also mean goddess. In the ancient Near East, and even in Paul's time, pagan gods would often be paired with goddesses, and human beings would project the human experience onto gods. They would look around, and they would see the world, and they would say, okay, uh, men and women complement each other. And so it must be that way with the gods as well. But this is where the first commandment is so radically monotheistic. Mono meaning one, theism meaning God or a system of believing in God. The God of Scripture does not exist in a pantheon of gods. He also does not need to be complemented by a goddess. But he is a God who is completely sufficient in himself. And even before he created the universe, he did not need anything, but was completely satisfied in the eternal fellowship of the three persons of the Trinity. So Paul is claiming something that is quite radical, even something that was radical on Mount Sinai. And what it means is that this God is alone to be worshipped, adored, trusted, invoked, and given thanks. In our lives... It is the same problem, but with much different details. Idolatry is a huge problem in our world, in our life. We do not see pagan temples in our land very often, though we have seen a little bit of a resurgence in that. But most of us do not have that particular struggle of going to church one Sunday and then the next Sunday going to a pagan ritual. But that does not mean that we are not in danger of breaking this commandment. When we adore, trust, invoke, or thank anything else in God's place, we break this commandment. Sometimes easy to see how idolatry creeps into our hearts, right? Sometimes it's easier to see. When I was in seminary, I was preaching at a CRC church in San Diego, and so I was cruising down the 15, as it's called, they, they say all of, in California, all of the highways have a the in front of them. That would be very not cool here, right? We're not cool enough to say it. The 294, it just doesn't sound right. So I was cruising down the 15, and as I was driving, it's about 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning, driving down this highway, drove past the San Diego Charger Stadium, which of course, sadly, is no longer uh, going to be used. And the Chargers had an away game that day, so I was assuming there would be no traffic and, and nobody around the stadium. But as I pulled past uh, the stadium, I noticed that the parking lot was actually quite full. The parking lot was quite full. 
Uh, keep in mind that they didn't have a game that day. There was no game being played at the stadium that day. What I realized was that many people had assembled to tailgate at the stadium, right? Even though there was no game being played, nothing going on, there was this worshiping instinct at work. People knew that they needed to go somewhere to worship, even though a game was not being played there. It reminded me that we all are worshiping creatures, And we all crave a community in which to do it. That's why something like sports or massive concerts by musicians so easily becomes idol worship for many. But for many of us, it is subtle. It's when we adore something in the place of God. Tim Keller says this, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. Ultimately, what is it that God gives? He gives us security in Christ. He gives us true and ultimate hope. For those of us that know the scriptures and know all of the things that it teaches, we are constantly humbled and renewed in thankfulness that in the the face of this great and perfect law, which we cannot keep, there is a law keeper, Jesus Christ, who brings us through the judgment waters, who brings us through all of the sin that's unearthed by God's law, and he gives us security and eternal life. But when you do not know this message, when you do not have this security, you turn somewhere else for it. Is it any wonder then that before In ancient times and in most parts of the world before the modern age and particularly before the world was largely affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ, people were wrapped up in all kinds of magic, all kinds of superstitious religion and spirituality. What they were trying to do was to gain some sense of control over their lives they don't have the security that is found in Jesus Christ. Some sense of control over the powers of the world. Appease this God, appease that God. It's also quite interesting that prayers and ceremonies to saints increased exponentially in the Christian church at the same time that the gospel message was becoming most diluted, right? In the Middle Ages, right before leading up to the Reformation, when the the gospel was becoming most diluted in the history of the church, that's when prayers to the saints increased exponentially. And that's why the Heidelberg Catechism warns us against all of these things. Magic, superstition, praying to saints. All of that sounds rather strange to us, doesn't it? But it is the effect of people looking for the security that comes in Christ. People looking for control over their destiny, for purpose in a world that seems so big and so beyond their power. So here we stand in our day. We have seen this resurgence of new age spirituality, of religion. People still saying they believe in God, though none of it can give what God gives to us in Christ. But in a world where people feel that all that is secure being ripped out from underneath them. We see that all throughout the world, right? Everybody feels like a victim. Everybody feels like they're not safe. Everybody feels like security is disappearing in this dissolving age. 
And people want something solid, something secure, something which gives them a sense of control. But hear this tonight. That all of that is grasping for, that is already in the hands of the Lord. This is what God provides to us. He says, have no other gods before me, because I am sovereign, I am the only God. And that is why the Catechism calls us to acknowledge that he is the only true God, and to trust him alone. And then it says this, to humbly and patiently love him, fear him, and honor him. To be humble in this way, as the Catechism prescribes, is to confess that God's ways are higher than our ways. When we cannot understand his plan, we are called to be humble. To be patient follows from this humility. If we are humble, we learn that God is always working things together for our good. So we are called even to accept suffering from the hand of God. And it teaches us to trust that he is in control, to acknowledge and worship no other God besides him. It is this mentality that as the church embraces it, It becomes the most forceful critique against the idolatrous inclinations of the human heart, right? Because all other kinds of worship are looking for some kind of security that only comes in Jesus Christ. As God's people, then, we need to be sensitive to all of these things, the inclinations of our heart that tend towards idolatry. All of the ways in which we will give adoration, thanksgiving, trust, to something other than God, seeking all of those things which only God can give in something else. That is the idolatrous heart. It's God's word, the Holy Spirit working through it, calling us back to the glory of God and the majesty of what he has done for us in the gospel that keeps all of us from that. He is a covenant God. We trust and we rest in him. We accept and rejoice in all that he has done, not only for us, but for our forefathers of old. He is a redeeming God. That's the motivation for obeying the Ten Commandments. And he is the only God. And that makes any breaking of the first commandment ludicrous, doesn't it? Because when we give our adoration to something else, we're giving our adoration to something that is not even close to the God of heaven and earth. He deserves our worship and our praise. We are to serve him with an undivided heart. All that we are, all that we have. To humbly and patiently trust him and his sovereignty. To give him all that we are. To worship him with all that we have. Because of what he has already done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel and for your word. As we meditate on all of this tonight, may you convict us of where we need your help, of where we can, by your Spirit, experience the victory over the power of sin in our lives. Send us out into this week, then. May we be eager to obey and to please you, to live lives of gratitude. Father, may your gospel go forth to the ends of the world. And may it abolish idolatry and the worship of other things. May the worship of your holy name be brought to the very corners of the earth, even until the day of Christ Jesus. 
In his name, amen.